Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for all the praises that we have this morning. Lord, we have so much to praise you for. But God, this morning I ask that you will help us as we dig into your word, uh, reveal your truth to us, God. Enlighten it for us so that we can understand it. Help us, Lord, to take it uh, with us as we go and share it with those around us. Lord, I pray this morning that you will help me to deliver the message that you've given me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, well, I think Children's Church is going to be open. Um, but we're continuing our sermon series uh, into the book of Acts. And this is Jesus' mission continues. And it's a look at disciple making in the early church. And we want to know what lessons we can learn from the early church to fulfill our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, verses 26 through 39. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to there. It's Acts 21. Uh, we're going to see a riot in the temple. Uh, James, can you turn me up a little bit? Um, sorry, uh, it's a riot in the temple. And we get to see a disciple's courage is an, out, an outgrowth of their faith in Jesus. I'm going to say that again. A disciple's courage is an outgrowth of our faith in Jesus. And in this, we see three things about Paul. First, that Paul is misrepresented. Paul is arrested, but Paul is courageous. And again, that courageous is through his faith in Jesus. Now, we missed last week due to the effects of Hurricane Florence. So let me remind you of the events that led up to this. Right, Paul had finished his last missionary journey um, by coming back to Jerusalem, and he met with the believers there. And they were excited to hear how the gospel was being spread among the Gentiles. But that excitement was kind of met with a little bit of um, hesitation or, or maybe a little bit of fear. They warned Paul that there were many who were not excited about the Gentiles' conversion, and they were spreading lies about Paul's teaching. Now, they told him to take some men with him and complete a vow to show that he was not completely ignoring the law of Moses. And that's where we pick up this story. We're going to pick up in verse 26. It says, So the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was stirred up, and people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut." So one thing that I want to point, just maybe a little bit of a side note, is right here it talks about seven days after the seven days were nearly over. Uh, last week when we talked about the, uh, the men going with Paul to take a vow, I had said that that might be a Nazarite vow. We can't know for sure, but this is another piece of evidence pointing that this could have been a Nazarite vow. We see in Numbers uh, chapter 6 that kind of outlines the, the rules for the Nazarite vow. And chapter 6, verse 9, it says, If someone suddenly dies near him, that being the Nazarite, defiling his consecrated head, he must shave his head on the, on the day of his purification. He is to shave it on the seventh day. Now, this is talking about a specific example of how the Nazarite could be defiled, uh, being uh, in close contact with a dead body. But this same practice would be held for anything that might defile the Nazarite, the Nazarite vow. And going into a, uh, a Gentile's house would be one thing that they would see as defiling that person. And Paul has definitely gone into Gentile's houses. Again, we don't know for sure that they're talking about a Nazarite vow, but it seems to be pointing to that. Um, so the next thing we see is that their complaint against Paul is that he is teaching everyone everywhere, or teaches everyone everywhere. Depending on your translation, it may say teaches or teaching. 
What you want to notice about that is that it is in the present tense. Actually, the Greek text implies that this teaching is habitual or a continued practice. See, it's not past tense. It's not something that he has done, but it's something that he is doing and continues to do. All right, this means it's not something that Paul accidentally said one time, and maybe he misspoke. No, he, he's continually teaching this. It's something that he goes around everywhere. And see, this teaching is not limited to one group or one place, but all over the place, everywhere. It's what this says, teaching everyone everywhere. Now, to their credit, this part of their complaint against Paul, sorry, this part of their complaint against Paul is true. Everywhere that Paul goes and everyone he meets, he is spreading the news of the gospel. He is teaching them about Jesus. He's telling them about how God created, sorry, where did we go? Telling them about how God created the universe. God created everything there is. And he created us to be in perfect relationship with him. Created, um, so I created us to be in perfect relationship with him, perfect relationship with each other, and in perfect relationship with the rest of creation. But as we read through the Bible and as we look in our lives, we see it's not like that. And that's because of sin. Sin came in and wrecked creation. It wrecked our relationship with God. It wrecked our relationship with each other. But that sin is anytime we're not following God's will in our life. It can be doing things that God has told us not to do. It could be not doing the things that God has told us to do or having sinful thoughts like lust and envy. And as I said, that sin has wrecked our relationships. It leads us to a place of brokenness. And that brokenness affects us in every aspect of our life. And people try all sorts of different things to fix this brokenness in their life. They could try um, working and, and earning enough money or, or getting, gaining enough power to fix the brokenness. They can try diving into their families to fix the relationships in their families to fix the brokenness. Or sometimes people just kind of give up and turn to drugs or alcohol to try to, to fix the pain of that brokenness or hide the pain of that brokenness. No matter what we do to try to fix that brokenness, it always turns back to more brokenness. It always leads back to more brokenness. But Jesus came and he took the punishment for our sin. And he died on the cross to, to fix the relationship that we broke, to take that punishment that we deserve and fix, uh, reconcile the relationship that we broke with God. And when we, have our, when we place our faith in him and we repent from our sins, then we are free to recover and pursue God's design in our life. Remember that, that God's design is a perfect relationship with him, a perfect relationship with each other, and a perfect relationship with the rest of creation. And that can only happen through faith in the gospel. And this is what Paul is teaching everywhere, everyone that he meets. He's teaching this to them. And so when the Jews were complaining that Paul is teaching everyone everywhere, okay, well, that part is true. But the next part of their complaint against Paul was not true. It says, um, my batteries must be going dead in this. It says that he's teaching everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. You see, they're, they're claiming that the gospel that Paul is preaching goes against the Old Testament. And therefore, everything that they have built their identity on. You see, the Jewish identity is built on what the Old Testament says about them. It's built on, the, uh, their legal structure is built on the Old Testament. And the temple is very closely tied to Old Testament teaching. It's directly, or the, the temple worship comes directly out of the Old Testament. And so if Paul is teaching, or what, if what Paul is teaching goes against the Old Testament, then Paul is preaching uh, against their identity as a Jew. But instead, what Paul is teaching is not contradictory to the Old Testament. It's not against the Old Testament, but it is a continuation of it. See, often people, even nowadays, people want to separate the Old Testament and the New Testament into two distinct stories. 
But that's not how it is. That's not the case. That's, it's, there, there's nothing that could be further from the truth. The Old Testament and the New Testament tell one story. It is a continual story. Uh, Jesus himself points to this fact in Matthew 5, 17. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then in Luke 24, uh, verse 25 through 27, he says, uh, he said to them, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And see, around that time, when a Jew would refer to Moses and all the prophets, they're talking about the books that we have in our Old Testament. They're talking about the Jewish scriptures. Sorry. The Jewish scriptures were divided into three sections. You have the Torah, you have the prophets, and you have the writings. So the Torah is the first five books. Sometimes we refer to it as the Pentateuch. These are the books that Moses wrote, and that's why they talk about the writings of Moses, or sometimes they'll just refer to Moses. And that's talking about the Torah, those first five books of the Bible. And then the, the next section is the prophets. Now, you can probably guess what's in there, but these, are, this, these books contain the messages that God spoke through his prophets to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And then the last section is the writings. Uh, these tend to be more poetic or historical in, in nature, not the writings of Moses and not prophecies, but historical or poetic. Um, and so when they would say Moses and all the prophets, it's another way of referring to all of their uh, holy writings, all of their scripture, what we would call the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying here that when you look through the whole Old Testament, or well, for them it wasn't the Old Testament, when you look through all of the Jewish holy writings, you see it pointing to me. You see it pointing to Jesus and the sacrifice that he has to make. So the gospel does not negate the Old Testament, but it serves as a continuation of God's revelation. See, Paul's enemies twist his teaching and they misrepresent what Paul is saying. Unfortunately, this type of misrepresentation still happens in our culture today. It still happens very frequently. And it might even be easier nowadays than it used to be thanks to technology and social media. So I have three takeaways from this point. First is don't believe everything you see on the internet. Second is don't be surprised if what you say gets twisted and misrepresented to mean something you didn't intend for it to mean. And finally, and this might be most importantly, is don't be the one who's spreading lies about other people. As quick, three little takeaways before we continue. So we're going to continue on um, picking up in verse 31. It says, as they were trying to heal him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander approached, took him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. When Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mass of the people following, or followed, yelling, get rid of him. Look here, it says, they took him into custody. They took Paul into custody and ordered him to be uh, bound with two chains. Now let's be very clear here. Paul is being arrested after being beaten by a mob because of a rumor that was based on a lie. All right, so this attempted murder against Paul, and he's the one being arrested. And it sounds like a pretty bad day, doesn't it? It sounds like there's a pretty, a pretty bad situation for Paul. Well, today there's this pretty popular uh, false teaching. It's called the, the, um, 
prosperity gospel. And so the prosperity gospel says that if you have enough faith in God, then he will provide you with health and well-being. Sometimes it's called the health and wealth gospel or health and wealth teaching. If you have enough faith in God or you live a good enough, uh, live a good enough life, then God is going to provide you with health and, and money and, and, and all this st- everything that you would want. Well, that's heresy. That's, that's wrong. Right? To that doctrine, I offer exhibit A, and that's Paul. See, Paul's life after his conversion was marked by extreme faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But it was also marked by conflict. Everywhere that Paul went, hardship followed him because of his faith. So a lot of time, or, well, sorry. So the, the, the prosperity gospel is saying that if you live a good enough life, then God's going to give you health and wealth and take care of all your needs. But then here we have Paul, who is living the exemplary life of, of a disciple. He's taking the gospel. He shows extreme faith in Jesus, and yet he is meeting hardship along every way. He's being persecuted everywhere he goes because of that teaching. So, furthermore, Jesus warns us that we will be persecuted for our faith. In Matthew 5, chapter 11, or Matthew chapter 5 verse 11, he says, You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when you find yourself persecuted and going through these hardships, don't automatically think that you're being punished by God. Don't automatically think that you don't have enough faith. As a matter of fact, it might be the opposite. It is a result of your great faith if you are being persecuted and going through hardships. So this is when it's helpful to maintain perspective and take hold of biblical truth. We have to remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus came to take the punishment for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sin. Even when we were his enemy, he loved us enough to take our punishment and that he was resurrected on the third day in victory over sin and death. See, through your faith in the gospel, you know that whatever struggles you come across today pale in comparison to the greatness of spending eternity with Jesus. Now, that's not to say that if you're going through something tough, you're going through a tough time, that doesn't mean that God's not disciplining you. Sometimes God does, well, not sometimes, God does discipline his children. God does discipline those who he loves. So when we're going through a hardship, maybe we are being disciplined by God. How do you know then? How do you know if you're being disciplined by God or if you're being uh, persecuted because of your faith? It's hard to know exactly, but there's one main thing that you can do. That is to go to God in prayer and ask him, Lord, am I being disciplined or am I being persecuted because of my faith? You go to him and you ask him, you search the scriptures, you look for evidence within the scriptures and you, you, you analyze your life. You allow God to look, or you, uh, sorry, you ask God to help you to look into your life to see if there are any sins in your life that you need to repent from. Then if you don't get any answers, you know, sometimes it's, it's very helpful to come alongside an accountability partner and ask and say, hey, do you see anything in my life where I, that I need to repent from? Any sin in my life that I need to turn away from? So when you're going through that hard time, yes, we do need to do some self-analyzing, uh, some prayerful self-analyzing to ask God, is there something I need to repent from? If not, then we pray for strength to make it through like Paul does. And see, we, let's see how this gospel perspective directs Paul's uh, reaction to being arrested. We're going to pick up in verse 37. It says, as he, was about to, uh, as he was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? He replied, you know how to speak Greek? 
Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Paul said, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. This, uh, this soldier's response is interesting. He says, aren't you an Egyptian? See, he's confused about Paul's identity. Right? See, Paul's incarceration started from a big misunderstanding. See, this is, again, emphasizing the point that sometimes, even if you are living a faithful life, you will be persecuted, or maybe persecuted because you are living a faithful life. But see, Paul knew the truth, and because of that truth, he had the courage to address the crowd. Now, we don't have time to get into his message this morning. We're actually going to go through that next week. It's a fairly long message, so if you want to read ahead, that would be good and help me in, uh, Sunday morning. But we won't have time to get into that today. So let me give you a quick summary. Paul gives his testimony. He talks about how Jesus changed his life because Jesus loved him. And he talks about how that love is available for everyone there, how the gospel is available for everyone there if they would believe. See, that, that type of courage doesn't come from living a lie. Paul believed the gospel with all of his heart, so much so that he would hold to it and even share it with others right after they had tr just tried to kill him right after they had him arrested because of false pretenses. So question, do we, have, do we believe in the gospel enough to share it with those who might disagree with us? Do we love our neighbors enough to share the gospel with them, even if it means they might disagree with us? And maybe you say, well, I'm just not naturally very courageous. Maybe I, I, I just don't naturally have that type of courage within me. Well, that's okay. Because the courage to share the gospel doesn't come from our own strength. The courage to share the gospel comes from the strength that God gives you through his Holy Spirit living inside of you. So pray for God to give you the courage to share the gospel with those around you. That brings us to our application points. What lessons can we learn from this, um, from this passage to apply, sorry, what lessons can we learn to apply to our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ? We break this down into three sections, knowing, being, and doing. So first, know that the gospel is truth. Know that the gospel is truth. There is no greater truth that you must know than the gospel. That God loved this world so much that he sent his son Jesus to take the penalty for our sin. And anyone who would call upon him would be saved. The second part of our application is the being. That's to be courageous. Again, this courage comes from faith in the truth, faith in the gospel. When we know the truth, we can be confident about it. But more importantly, it comes, this courage comes from the Holy Spirit, from God's Holy Spirit living inside of us. So our final application point, the doing, is to pray for courage. Pray for God to give you the courage to go out and share the gospel with those around you. That's been a big part of the, the book that we just finished is sharing Jesus without freaking out, is to pray for the courage to share the gospel. That's a big part of that. We can try to go out and do it on our own power, but that's just idolizing ourselves. But when we pray for the, the strength to come from God and when we, when we surrender to his Holy Spirit and sharing the gospel, that's a great act of worship on our part and a great act of love from God to others through us. So let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the truth that is in your word. I thank you for the message that you have for us that's in this word. And Lord, I thank you for your son who came to die for our sin. 
Lord, I pray that we can take this message and share it with those around us. I pray that you will give us the courage that Paul has, where we can go and share the gospel with those around us, even if they disagree with us, God. I pray that you will give us that courage. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of response, and you can pray where you're at, or you can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you, come and pray, you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.